Well, good morning, LCM. Jen, you look particularly radiant today. It's a good day in the house, isn't it? Abby, you seem excited. Is there any particular reason? Oh, man, that's awesome. It's good to see our guest here. It's good to see you, Luke. Good to see you, too, Valentin. Man, we're going to have an amazing day in the house of God, aren't we? Yeah, all kind of fun stuff. We've got a reason to be happy. I, uh, I want to remind you of some of the things that you heard on Thursday, because those brothers brought a fantastic word, Midnight and Coltrane Delivered. Some of the things that you might remember are that we want to be Aaron, the one that nobody had to call to show up to help his brother. We want to be Jonathan, the one that puts on those Nikes and crosses a desert just to strengthen David. We, we want to be Barnabas, a son of encouragement that lives to see other men surpass him. We want to be John the Immerser, the guy who is decreasing that others might increase, and this gives him joy and makes his joy complete. We were also given three very practical ways that we can work on those things. Oh, come on. We are going to be physically next to our brothers. Amen? Yes. Yeah, we are also going to remind our brothers of the promises that God has spoken to them. Yeah, that's very, very, what you've heard come out of their mouth that God has said to them. And whenever we have the opportunity to do something for the Lord, we're going to include our brothers. This is going to help us form the body of Christ that stretches around the world. Well, this morning we also have a message for you. Judah, why don't you help us set the context. Tell us what we're going to talk about today. Are you gentlemen alive this morning? Yes. Are there some men of God in this house that are excited about laboring for your brothers? Yes. Once again, we want to thank Midnight and Nitro or Midnight and Cold Train for delivering what they did last week. Their message put us in a place where we were contemplating the word of God and our own lives in this process. Our sermon today is called Judah and his brothers. Yeah. Somebody say Judah. Judah and, and his brothers, his bros. We're going to pick up together in the book of Genesis, where all good sermons ought to start. Now, many of you, when you begin to think about the latter chapters of Genesis, say chapter 37, if you wanted to begin turning, your mind immediately is drawn to amazing shadows and types. You think about a story that is beloved, the story of Joseph. Well, this morning... We want to take things a little differently. Rather than going through what you're expecting in the life of Joseph, we want to wrestle with the elements of the story that we rarely consider. We want to wrestle with the story of Judah and his brothers. Yeah, let's talk about why for a second, okay? You guys are used to sitting. You're used to soaking. We could be Captain Obvious this morning. And take you through a journey into the blatantly well-known. We could talk to you about Joseph as a shadow of Jesus Christ, which would surprise no one unless this is your first service here. And you'll identify with it and you'll love it. And the reason that you'll love it is because we want to be Joseph. We want to be the guy that me, I did not do nothing wrong. 
and yet God exalts you in every way. But the reality is there is an equally beautiful story for the brothers who all did do something wrong just like you. And God also redeems them. Saints, I hope you can see we're going to have a good time today. This is not the kind of message that will be precisely delivered in 58 minutes with a neat little closing. See, we're honestly reflecting upon the story of Joseph. We realized that not only as a culture, but personally, we're always more prone to identify with the one that is the victim in the story, the one who was wronged and mistreated. And we begin to think about the ways in which we have been wronged and mistreated, but God has been faithful anyway. Well, our intent today is to focus on elements that more accurately like realistically, relate to where our feet are currently standing. Does that sound good to you? Do you feel sufficiently encouraged? Good, because it's about to get really rough. (laughs) But we're going to do it together. Amen? Hey, before we turn there, it's not the children's church meeting yet. But let me just give you a hint. Assume that your kid is a wicked sinner, like you, and that they need to be redeemed, like you, and that nobody is committing acts of injustice against them, they are the ones perpetrating the acts of injustice. Children's church will go wonderfully. So if you were listening, Genesis 37, starting in verse 4 is what we would like to look at together. Somebody say there when you're there. I like that we say there when we're on the way, but this morning I really want to know that you're actually in your physical Bible in Genesis 37. So one more time, if you're there staring at it on a page, can you say there? There! It says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Saints, this morning we are not going to go through word studies, but it's certainly interesting to note that as we're beginning to view this story, His brothers were not able to speak in peace or shalom towards Joseph. See, there's a bit of a misplaced enmity that is going on here. As we're setting the stage for the life of these brothers in the redemption story, you need to know that they're not even capable of pretending to be in shalom with their speech towards Joseph. See, there's often disunity, but that kind of simmers under the surface. This has reached the place where they're now incapable of vocalizing what they know to be right because of their inward condition. So to say the least, things are stewing because of a hostility or a misplaced enmity. Why don't we look at verse 10 together? But when he told it to his father, am I in the right place? Yes, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. When you are contemplating this, because you know this story, we're not going to walk you through every detail. You remember that Joseph had brought a bad report about his brothers. 
You know what he didn't do? He didn't create the bad actions that the report contained. He's just the messenger. The scripture says that his father loved him more because he was the son of his old age. Does that mean that he didn't love the other brothers? Does it mean he didn't have a blessing for the other brothers? When you start to dig into this concept, what you really see is that we have another story about sons who misunderstand their father. This is not that much different than Luke 15, where you have one brother that goes out and lives like a whore and tax collector and comes home, and he didn't understand his father. And you have a brother who stayed home the whole time and didn't understand his father. But his father loved both sons. And his desire to show kindness to one did not take anything away from the other brothers. Yeah, when you consider that we sometimes view the kingdom of God like you do a plate of cookies at your house. It's a metaphor most of you can identify with, right? And you notice how many cookies that Rick Lawhon took. Too many. And you're concerned because you think that him having that kind of blessing means that there will not be enough blessing for you. And so you despise Rick in your heart because you think that him being favored with a blessing is somehow taking something away from you. Friends, your brother's success will never take something away from you. The kingdom is not a slice of pie or a plate of cookies that if Luke gets a certain size, there's not enough left for Valentine. The kingdom is immeasurable and the father has a blessing for every one of his sons. Sound booth, could we put Ephesians 2.10 on the screen for just a moment? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saints, do you believe that verse? Did you know that verse before we threw it on the screen? Have you considered that this verse unequivocally means that God has already preordained works for you, a life for you beforehand that cannot be taken? See, it's not coming out of a limited supply on a plate. It is coming from the Almighty Father, the Father who made the heavens and the earth and prepared the life that you currently have, and He does not have an exhaustible supply. You know, in addition to Luke 15, this concept with these brothers and their interaction or misunderstanding with the Father, well, it really draws to mind a parable in Matthew 20. You go ahead and stay in Genesis. You're going to keep your finger in Genesis all morning. I say Genesis, Genesis. All, day. all day. Now we have our time frame set. There we go. Matthew 20, in the New Testament law, picking up in verse 11. It says, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Anybody know what's happening here? So we have servants 
doing the work that a master has ordained. Yeah. In a vineyard that the master built. Collecting wages that the master has provided. But some of the servants or the sons are beginning to grumble among one another. They're saying these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. See, we have a master in his righteousness, in his magnificent character, who has been entirely fair with everyone who has been brought into his kingdom and his labors. He has given them exactly what he said he would give. Life from death. From sitting and having nothing to do. Wasting their lives in the city streets. And now they've been given a job, a purpose, a life to live that was prepared. But for some reason when they feel like someone else has been given more, they now feel shorted. And they weren't even necessarily given more. They were given something that was good, but not necessarily more. The master replies to them and says, friend, my friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? A day's wages. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So let's just engage with this for a second. We have a father that we have been trained to see as treating his children unequitably. We see jo Jacob showing favoritism to Joseph as the problem that begins uh, and causes his brothers to be jealous of him. The text does not really indicate that, though. 2,000 years of preaching does. Mm -hmm. What the text indicates is that Jacob favored him, loved him because of the circumstance of his birth. It's normal to have kids when you're 20. Where you at, Rick? But when you have them later in life, I mean, it is a special thing. Yes. And, and this coat of many colors, you're like, oh, yeah, man, he was bedazzled. No, no, the, it may just be a coat with sleeves. Okay, read your footnotes. Look, look, look at, can you really despise the fact that your daddy is happy God gave him a child late in life? And your shirt doesn't have sleeves and his shirt does have sleeves. See, it starts to get silly when you think about it like that. And it's because we're genuinely worried that if our brother gets too big of a slice of the pie, that that takes something away from us. And it's because we misunderstand the nature of our father. Now, I know that you agree with me. I know that you're sitting contemplating it, but I want you to feel it. When you're not the one that prayed for somebody to get baptized in the Holy Ghost. When you were in the circle praying, but they didn't break free in their prayer language until Nick Aragina put his hands on them. <laughs> Who has that not happened to? 
What about your brother's success diminishes you in any way? But can you admit to the fact that you have felt diminished? Yeah, let, let me just hit another one, then I'm going to lay this on Judah for, for a minute. Y'all ready? You taking a deep breath? Your friend got married. Or is about to. You're not sure you can even go to the wedding. Because for some reason, your friend getting married means to you that God loves you less. Do you have a problem with your friend or do you have a problem with your father? Or do you have a problem with both? See, this is rife in our life. You saw your brother ordained. You're so excited for your brother. Except somehow or another to you, that means that maybe you're just not that cold. Why does our brother's success feel like a threat to us? Because we do not understand our father. Yeah, Judah, we got a few more in there? At some point in time, we probably will visit the Apostle John's New Testament epistles. But suffice it to say, any time that there's a misunderstanding of the father, you can bank on mistreatment of brothers. This shows up in a great deal of areas. And to be frank, I'm not pulling examples from random pulling them out of my own life and also out of this room. When you hear that the mission field is opening back up in LCM, yes, yes, that after a couple years of staying domestic, you know, no fly time. And you guys are in these cool little things called teams now. Yes, teams, teams, equal teams, fixed value teams. And then your step three, you begin to realize that God may be drawing your brother to go on something that is amazing, that is exciting, that is out of the country. And you are probably going to be staying here doing what you've always done with there being no changes in life. All of a sudden, I can see some of you swallowing a little harder in the room, ducking your head when we're talking about these kind of trips. It's like a Democrat talking about disenfranchisement. Uh, he will have you believe that the biggest problem is that people are not allowed to vote, especially, especially if you're the wrong color, right? <laughs> of course, there are more votes that come in for that party than there are people in the towns. It's a feeling of disenfranchisement, but there's no reality to it. We feel disenfranchised when something good happens to our brother. Everybody loves Pastor Piro. Do you feel less secure as a disciple when you realize that someone else has had a three-hour lunch with Pastor Piro and you weren't invited? See, what happens to us is we take a worldly materialism kind of attitude into the kingdom of God. We think he who dies with the most things he wants at the end of the week is the one who is most blessed, most favored, and loved by God. See, this is worldly thinking that has crept into our relationships and is a misunderstanding of the Father 
who is the author of all good things. I'm so glad, brother, that you got a new car. And then your next thought is, why didn't I get a new car? I'm so happy to be at your house. You got a new house. That's so exciting. And then you go home and wonder why you didn't get a new house. Your brother's blessing does not take anything away from you. But if you're honest, you've had those thoughts. Some of you have spoken them out loud. Some of you have grieved and mourned about them just like something bad had happened to you. So when you're considering this, and again, we're going to have our children's church meeting after the service. But a fantastic way. I mean, like just the easiest way for you to identify how you normally think about this is to look at your own children and evaluate the way that you give gifts. Are you one of those mothers and fathers that feels the need to give something to each one of your children and it's not okay for you to give two something and three and four not receive something? Do you feel the need for everything to be perfectly fair and equal. Well, if that is bothering you and you're one of those people who cannot give one son a toy while the other one learns to be grateful and thankful that his brother received something, it's probably because you can't do it either. Sometimes looking at our kids is just the best way to see what's going on inside of us. If you were one of those mamas... That in every situation, your child was not treated fairly. It's because that's how you feel and you are projecting it on your child because you don't understand your father or your own sinful nature. So you can't see it in your kid. I want to understand my father better. How about you? Yeah. Why don't we take a look at Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. Again, we're going to put it on the screen. You stay in Genesis 37. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Saints, many of you have interacted with this before. This passage may come to mind when you think about celestial powers teachings. Two families in heaven, where all fatherhood stems from, all created by one God. We'd like to interact with this in your reading in Genesis. When you're thinking about one father from whom all fatherhood or every family extends, who grants, who strengthens with power in the inner being. Do you think that Jacob was devoid of blessings for his other children? Perhaps they had blessings that came in different timings. Perhaps the ones that were older were the first to inherit everything that Jacob had. And the one that was born last would have been last to inherit the estate. And he happened to have a coat in their interim that was a gift, a token of his father's affection. Dad, I know I'm your firstborn and you've given me a double portion, but I'm pissed that he got a shirt with sleeves. Yeah? You beginning to hear Luke 15? Son, everything I have is yours. 
What happens to us is you overlook everything that God has already done for you, is doing, and will do in the future because you see something happen for your brother, and it makes you feel like you're inadequate. The only thing that is inadequate is the attitude that is springing forth out of the sinful soil of your heart. If we were grateful for our brother's success, if we were inspired by what was happening with our brother, this story would read completely differently. Let me just say this very plainly so that we can move forward. You are not Joseph. None of you are. None of you have been sold into slavery by all of your brothers. None of you have been mistreated and falsely accused. You're not an American Idol contestant, and you just need to stop it. What you are are sons of God who he has lavished blessings on. You cannot be made a victim in any setting. Now what we're going to do is examine the behavior of Judah and the brothers, and we're going to personally identify with it. Yeah? Oh, he's going to be uncomfortable. But the story ends well. Since you're still in Genesis 37, scan down to verse 21 with me. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their, their hand to restore him to his father. Saints, what's going on right here is you have Reuben who is working to rescue Joseph and saying, don't lay a hand on him. Just strip him naked, lay your hands on him, and throw him in a pit. While nine of the remaining brothers, including Judah, all currently want to just kill him and be done with it. See, Reuben in this moment is taking a half measure to keep his life alive, but is also still very willing for his brother to be thrown in a pit. Have anybody dug a hole in your backyard and thrown John Dang in it? Probably not. Although in Romania once I did see him fall into an open septic system and be knocked out by a tile. So how does this happen? How, how does this happen? It's when you intentionally created disparity between you and your brother. You do it in conversation. You do it through reputation. Like this. You know, uh, Cassidy really got a problem. And we're all praying for Cassidy. We hope Cassidy is going to do better. But, I mean, we all know Cassidy's this way. Then you go and you meet Cassidy, and you're like, Cass, I love you so much, baby. Everybody is saying that you got a problem. E everybody can see this. And I really, I just want to help you. You threw your brother into the pit so that you could be the rescuer to pull them out of the pit, and you feel noble for doing it. You are the cause of the problem. It was your idea to put them in the pit, and you feel bad about it, so you also want to rescue them without acknowledging that you did it to them in the first place. Now you go, no, no, man, we've never done that. You, you have uh, never felt the need to put a man in his place? You've never felt the need just to knock them down a notch? How's that not putting your brother in a pit? You've never pretended in your heart that you were the one being loyal to them, 
but you had also participated in negative conversations about them? Oh, y'all interact with me. Have you done that or not? This is fun. We've been doing this for a week with ourselves. We've been doing it in our ministry team. And we're going to make sure that you personally interact with it this morning. So when we're talking about painting a demeaning picture of your brother, those slight words that show up in your conversation that are, well, I'm not sure that he handled this the best way, so that you can later then affirm you are the one who has the best way. You see, we have a way of creating disparities because we believe that they are fixing our problem with the Father. What this goes directly back to is Reuben. Reuben, who did not understand his father, who had sinned against his father, now believes that by putting his brother in a pit and playing the pseudo-rescuer, that he can restore his relationship with his father and he'll be loved once again because of the disparity between him and his brother. Somebody say pseudo. Pseudo. Rescuer. You're not actually a rescuer if you contributed to the demise of your brother. If it was your idea to put him in a pit, the fact that you felt bad about it later and wanted to be edifying to him doesn't change the fact you put them in the pit. I want you to understand something. Anytime that you want to profit off of your brother's misfortune, anytime, here, here's a great compliment. Abby, I really thought that the way that you preached today was amazing. I mean, when Sasha preaches, to be honest, I don't understand it. But today was great. You know how many times I've heard that in my life? What are you doing? You are profiting off of someone else's misfortune. You might as well become a money lender and charge them interest. You are trading off the currency of a brother's reputation. You should never need... At the same moment that you should never feel like you are diminished because something good's happening for your brother, you should never think that diminishing or denigrating anyone else for any reason enhances you in some way. It doesn't. Let's keep moving in Genesis. <laughs> moving down to verse 26, we're no longer talking about Reuben. Said, then Judah said to his brothers, oh. what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What? Profit? See, Reuben wanted to trade off of the pseudo-rescuer. Throw your brother into a hole. You can rescue your brother, and then you're the hero. You were the cause and the solution, but we'll focus on the solution part. Judah didn't think that was profitable enough. Judah wanted to go further than that. Like, that might enhance our reputation with dad in some way, but I really want to profit more than that. Verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. He's speaking to the rest of his brothers. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So look, before we comment on our own lives, I want to help you understand what is happening here. Reuben and his wonderful 
amazing pseudo-savior model decides, throw him in a hole, and he plans to bring him back to his father later and be the hero. While Reuben takes a hike, probably looking for a rope, he's no longer standing there. So Judah begins to speak with the rest of his brothers. And he tells them, look, look, Reuben, the oldest said, don't kill him. He didn't say anything about keeping him alive, though, in selling him into slavery. And it'll be more profitable. We will make more off of it and have done what we were told to do. You familiar with the term malicious obedience? See, what is happening here is Judah is advocating for what he believes to be more profitable. The slandering of his brother's reputation. The captivity of his brother's calling. He believes since I can't kill him, well, maybe it would be okay if I bind him up and we'll see what comes of his dreams in slavery. You know what's more profitable than slandering your brother? That's, that's just not enough. We'll just sell him out to the world altogether and consider his calling dead. And forget that God has promises for his life as well. That's even, now you can just focus on what you really want to, yourself. See, the deceptive idolatry of self is enormous. I, if we had time, I would maybe read to you Jonah 2.8. We don't have time. So I'll just tell you, when we cling to worthless idols, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. And maybe a, well do, a whale, a big fish does not open its mouth and swallow you right then, but it'd be a blessing if it did. Because what is going to happen to Judah for this suggestion is worse than a whale swallowing you. By far. And if the whale swallowed you the moment that you did something like this, you would at least see the cause and the effect. But if it plays out over years in your life, you allow yourself to believe that you're just a victim instead of the cause of the events that are happening to you. Oh, y'all ready to, to engage with the word? Yeah, this has been tearing us up. Uh, by the way, Judah and his brothers, it's not just you guys. It's us. We do, we do it in ministry and think we're doing a service to God. But we're repenting this morning with you. Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone! And where shall I go. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the blood or the robe in the blood. See, Reuben's actions were not any more noble than his other brothers. Reuben was the one who first put him in the pit and he says what his motivation is. Where shall I go now that he's not here? Reuben wanted to be the pseudo rescuer. Reuben was willing to put his brother in a pit and then lied to his father about it and become the rescuer. Now that his plan has been foiled, his slander with one brother and then presenting himself as a hero later didn't work out, well, he has to come up with a new idea. They slaughtered a goat, dipped the road in blood, and now he's going to bring a false flag to his father. See, when you're willing to lie to yourself about the nobility of your actions... Like, no, no, I was trying to rescue the brother. Yeah, but you contributed to the slander of your brother that he now needs to be rescued from. When you're willing to lie to yourself about that, the next step is that you're willing to lie to God as well. In this case, 
his own deceptive idolatry causes him to be more than willing to go and present a total falsehood to his father. Yeah, sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. First John 1, verse 5 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. See, when you begin to misunderstand the Father and you believe that there is injustice in him, no matter how tiny, it is the seed that grows into your total deception. See, our Father has no darkness in him at all. Our problem is our understanding of his actions, not his actions. Oh, so, so let's, let's just get this. If you're the brother, you think that your problem is with that dreamer. I mean, look at him. He's a pompous little peacock that is walking around all of the time in that coat. The problem is with him. But who's your problem really with? His father. You don't like your father's actions. And you're not willing to say that at first. It's easier to blame it at the brother. But 1 John teaches us if you have a problem with your brother, it's because you have a problem with his God. Now, Reuben and the brother's next actions show their problem with the father. At first, they're just lashing out against their brother, and they believe that's where the issue is. But now, they are openly lying to their father, which is where their problem always was. See, when we have a wall between us and our brother, we are building ceilings between us and our father. And you have to realize that the genesis of your problem with a brother is that you don't trust your mutual father to transform him or transform you. You think that him being blessed means that you're being diminished. Mm -hmm. You think that you bringing him down a little bit raises you up. And in reality, our father has a wage for each one of us that was destined before time and no man can affect. I don't know why they are leading worship. You mean you want to and you think them doing it is keeping your heavenly father from bringing your calling about? I don't know why that guy is always teaching. Do you mean to tell me you think your heavenly father is so small that he cannot cause you to teach on the day that you're supposed to teach? Our problem is with our father and it manifests against our brother. John goes on to say, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Saints, we want you to understand today, not just hear it, but for it to sink down into you. There is no way to draw closer to your calling by disparaging your brother. There is no way to grow closer to the Lord by demeaning someone else. And a very real practical kind of example that mirrors what we're reading about in Genesis is when someone new comes in, Somebody who was born again later in life, just like Joseph. And you see the favor of God, the blessing upon them. And you begin to despise the fact that you've been here the whole time and you feel like they're wearing a coat of many colors and you've been forgotten. I've been here 15 years. That guy's been here like three minutes. Why is everybody showing him such, such attention? Well, I'm not going to say because you suck. Instead, we'll just say that your attitude is idolatrous. That's, that's why. 
and you have a problem with God that you haven't identified yet. See, if, if instead you look and go, he's only been here three minutes, and look at the favor that is being shown him, and I've been standing in this my whole life, look what is available. That might be something that God could work with. Come on. This draws to mind a concept that we want to help connect for you. Everything that is written in the law has a way of prophesying what will happen later in men's lives. And it both gives you a solution, gives you a consequence, gives you everything that is happening. But you also need to reflect on the fact that Moses penned the law. And he penned it starting with Genesis, reflecting upon the life of the patriarchs and their example. So if you ever have a chance, and I'm not suggesting it, I'm simply saying that it's a fact. The book of Jubilees is um, a historical work that lets you know the kind of things that are being discussed in the centuries prior to Jesus. And the view of the law presented in the book of Jubilees is that it is eternal and that it was in the heavens before it was given to Moses. And that the reason that it was given to Moses is because what was standing in the heavens next to the Father was revealed to Moses so that the sons did not make the mistakes that the patriarchs made. The, the men in Moses' day loved the patriarchs. They thought that they were amazing, but they recognized that there were errors in their life and that the law was in heaven during the days of the patriarchs and from the creation, but revealed to Moses so that the sons could move on in life without repeating the mistakes of the patriarchs, which means every law in the Torah can be directly tied to events in the patriarchs' lives. Would you like to see how? We're going to revisit Exodus 22, verse 21 together. Do not ill-treat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. To start with, this passage is referencing the time that they were oppressed in Egypt. Do you know when they went into Egypt? It wasn't in Moses' day. It was 70 in all with 12 brothers at the end of this very story that they entered to the place of Egypt. The law is reminding them of their origin point where the patriarchs went, and how they ended up in Egypt to begin with. It goes on and it says, My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. And then seamlessly rolling into verse 25, it says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. See, I see that you're down in that hole. I helped put you there. But now I'm going to lend you a rope, and the interest that I receive off of the rope is I'll look like a rescuer to the Father. There are all kind of ways that we charge each other interest. If you're still holding a record of wrongs for anything that anyone has done, especially your spouse, and you bring it up in conversation just so that they'll know that they've always been this way and that they need to prove themselves to you a little more, you're a moneylender. Judah wanted to profit off of his brother's misfortune. His brother's misfortune in some way enhanced his life. 
Just like seeing someone indebted and going, now's my opportunity to make a little something for myself. In essence, Judah decides, well, I'm going to obey what was given. He's just going to reap the consequences of his own life and find out how not special he is. I'm just surrendering him over to his own bad decisions. I am not my brother's keeper. I'm going to make something off of this and enjoy watching what happens to him. Yeah, so have you ever done this one? Hey, I tried to warn him in the past. He just, he, he just doesn't listen. And you know your brother's going into a pit, into a hole, but you're going to withhold the life-giving words that God has given you so that he will learn from his own decisions. Do you really think the thought, I told you so, isn't you profiting off of what is happening every time it rolls through your brain? See, these behaviors in Judah and his brothers, they are destructive. They reveal that they honestly do not understand their earthly father or their heavenly father. See, we just read what Exodus said would happen. You should know that you would die for this kind of behavior. What does that mean about Judah and his brothers? What do they deserve the moment they do this? Death. What we want to do is take a look at an event that we have called the Adullam event for a few reasons. Somebody say Adullam? Adullam. Event. Event. Now, it's not the one you're thinking of where David does amazing things in Adullam. These are David's ancestors. Different kind of Adullam event. You're just going to move down on your Bible to Genesis 38, verse 1 with me. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. That's always an interesting start to a story. Went down from his brothers. So the brother who makes the suggestion to sell Joseph in the very next chapter, which is a, a parenthetical insert that is going to tell you how his life goes after that decision, is going down from his brothers. Can I tell you, throwing your brother into a hole and selling him into slavery will cause your life to go down, not his? Just to help you with this for a minute, 37, the last thing that you learn about is Judah sold Joseph into slavery. Do you know what chapter 39 is about? Joseph in slavery. The entire chapter 38 does not match the chronology. It does not keep a linear story. After Judah suggests I should profit off selling him, it goes to tell you about Judah's life over these years. Which is decades. And he turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Look, this is beginning to set up a whole story. Judah goes down from his brothers, and he's always interacting with an Adulamite. If you keep going to verse 7, it's going to bring you into consequences and things that are now happening in Judah's life. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. There are so many things that we could teach about this chapter. And we want to stay practically motivated. But when you consider that his firstborn is Ur, that he has a son named Onan, which we will read about, another son named Shelah, even the place where Shelah is living, e even that word, Kezeb, it means deception. The whole story is about Judah making that choice to sell out his brother, and now his life is going downhill. He is living in active 
deception, and it shows up not just in Judah, but in his sons. Somebody say, son number one. Son number one. Dead. Dead. Pick up in verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Somebody say, son number two. Son number two. Dead. Dead. Are you beginning to understand that we have a generational problem? That Judah was willing to sell his brother into slavery so that it would profit him. And now his sons are unwilling to do anything that would profit their brothers. There's so many things that you can learn from this story. Y'all seem so serious. I mean, one of them is that if you're going to walk into Onan's tent, you should probably wear flip-flops. But that's not what we hope you will take away from this story. See, I want to make sure you're paying attention. Let, let's draw a more spiritual conclusion. When you are barren spiritually and you resent what is being conceived for your brothers, that will not make you more fertile. In fact, it only serves to make you more barren. Withholding blessings from your brother, not fighting for your brother's blessings, actually makes your life go down from your brothers. It puts to death the offspring that you would bring forward. Our lives are intrinsically linked with each other, kind of like we're a body. And that if we're a body, we're edified by our workings with one another. It turns out that misunderstanding our father and mistreating our brother actually hurts us worse than our brother. Judah thought that he got everything he wanted. The profit off of his brother. He had a wife. He had sons. And now the fruit of what he's done is beginning to come to roost. Verse 11 says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. I want you to wrestle with this for just a minute. Has Judah just committed to giving his last son to Tamar? Wait till he grows up. Hold on, Titus. The text itself said he feared that he would die. Look, you have to remember Moses is writing Genesis 38, not Judah. Moses is telling you, God killed the firstborn. God killed the secondborn. Do you know who is unaware of why these things are happening to him? Judah. He thinks it's Tamar's fault. He fears that if I give my son to her, he will die. And he has not reflected on the fact that it was his son's character that caused them to die. And that character was first found in him. Why did he have that kind of flaw? Because he didn't recognize his own fault earlier. He thought it was his brother. He didn't realize he had a problem with his dad. He thought his problem was with his brother. So now God is acting against the line of Judah. And the men in the line of Judah are acting wickedly. And Judah can't make the association. This is not the woman's fault. 
This is my and my son's fault. There's a cause and effect relationship here. In fact, talk to Justin Treister about the Hebrew lettering here. It's quite interesting. The word error is an olive and a resh. And then the word for evil is a resh and an olive. Almost like in Judah's firstborn son, there's a directional indicator. Here's where he thinks it's going, but here's where it will end. See, we don't understand the result of our actions when we mistreat our brothers. And when we say mistreat, you absolve yourself and you don't think that you mistreat your brothers. Judah's about to mistreat this woman. And it starts by not doing the things that you said you would do. Yeah, consider this from Deuteronomy. Is that all right? From Deuteronomy, I want to read to you 23 in verse 17. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Somebody say amen. Amen. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Amen. Amen again. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Have you ever seen a dog receive wages? We, we looked into this word deeply. Like, what is this talking about? It means and, dog. And it, it clearly is kolev. Uh, I, I can't help but think of Brutus, <laughs> right? A male prostitute is a dog. Like, you could call him Sancho, if you want. <laughs> With all of his heart, he's interested in all of the wrong things. God will not accept human trafficking, the trading of human favors as an offering to him. He simply won't do it. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Pick up in verse 21. You see how they're related to each other too? <laughs> human trafficking and interest on loans is related you're trafficking in human beings if you need to put down Tisdale to make yourself look better with Adam. You're, you're trafficking in human beings. You're trading on the currency of their reputation. Verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Saints, did you hear the word delay? It doesn't say you sin if you fail to keep it. You sin if you delay in keeping it. Look, for many reasons, this is a terrifying verse. The things that have passed from our lips voluntarily, well, they're a bit excessive when you really begin to contemplate this. Hey, let's just do it real quick. You ready? What's that sign say? Wait, wait, what does it say? See, that passed your lips. You said it. If we delay in doing it, if we do not do it, that phrase passed your lips. 
Now, that would be a very dirty preacher's trick that I just did to you, except you've said it before today. You just haven't thought about it as seriously as you are in light of what we're reading in Deuteronomy 23. Matthew 5, 37 clearly tells us that our yes is to be yes and a no is to be no. That anything that is passed from your lips, it doesn't have to be sworn with uplifted hand in some kind of dramatic vow. God considers your speech a vow. It's almost like we have one association O's that are a promise made to the group is a vow before my God. So you just read one of the signs. You promised to die for your brother's vision. You've promised to correct your brother instead of condemning your brother to learn through consequences and mistakes. You've promised to never share, to never talk about what happened in Mashlomka until you decide to bring it back up later as a weapon. Yeah, I mean, I will never do it. I will protect you. This is consecrated speech before God unless it's useful like interest on a loan next week to make a point. Oh, here's my favorite one. I promise I am going to pray for you, Andrew Tisdale. I promise this decision that you've brought up before the group, I will spend my week praying about it. And then you forget it ever existed until three minutes before it's brought up again in the next meeting or the next time I see the brother in a church service because he's been the furthest thing from my mind. Although I said, I, as an ambassador of God, I will pray for you regarding this subject. One of the ways you put your brother in a pit while you go to look for a rope to rescue him is... Uh, you know, Nia, I am praying, I am praying for you night and day. It's not true. It passed your lips. It made you feel better to say it, but it's not true. And then whatever happened for Nia that God did, you, that's so awesome, baby. I've been praying for you. You threw her in a pit. You broke your vow with your pledge, but you want to appear to be the right. Tell me you haven't done that. Of course you have. I have too. This is a terrifying truth that we are not Joseph in the story. We are Judah and the brothers in the story. The result of Judah selling out his brother was that he produced children who sold out their brothers as well. The result of Judah lying to his father is that he has children who lie and disobey. Judah then has made a vow to give his last son. But because he cannot see his own sin, he thinks Tamar is the problem, not his character and the character of his sons. Judah made this promise never intending to keep his vow. See, this is the progression of sin. Those who lie to God, those who lie to the Father about their own motives, well, they tend to keep lying to themselves and everyone else, even when God is visiting consequence that is intended to change our direction. Judah's loss at Adullam. Well, saints, it's not nearly over. Move to verse 12 with us. And notice that it is following the same pattern that was laid out in Exodus. Because the law was given and foresees in advance, since it's eternal, the events that would happen. It is for us a warning so that we can live better than men that went before us. Every generation getting better. In fact, the law was given to Moses for the same reason that Jesus Christ, begotten of the Father's side, shows up and we can do better in him 
than generations before us. John even presents it that way. One blessing after another. Yeah. Look at Genesis 38, 12. This, this, this hurts. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hiram, the Adulamite. It's not just his sons that are dying. His wife is dying. Do you remember when you charge your brother usury? Do you remember what it will do with the Lord? It will make him angry. Your sons won't have parents and your wife won't have a husband. Well, Judah is the one that should have died. <laughs> but instead, everybody else around him is dying. Of course, Judah does die in a manner of speaking before this story is over. Judah has the sentence of death in his heart. He's experiencing the fruit of evil, of usury, of deception, and death. Up to this point, he has disassociated the consequences in his life with his actual sin. Feels like it's hard to believe, except we do it every day. Consequence is Adonai's gift. And remember, like we said, he should already be dead. The fact that he's experiencing these consequences is God moving him towards repentance. Verse 13 says, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up. And she had not been given to him in marriage. Look, I want to tell you right now that nothing about this story is going to be positive. That you're watching Judah come to the lowest point in his life. Experiencing the consequence of sin in his sons, in his wife, and now even in his daughter-in-law. So we pick up in 15. Remember what we just read earlier. We were told by the law that the wages of a prostitute cannot enter his house. Told by the law that vows must be kept. You're going to find out that refusing to keep a vow and prostitution are at play in this very story. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. <laughs> there are connections that we don't have time to make. Do you remember what was sent to Jacob? They sent him a young goat instead of a son. In any case, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, I will give, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. What started out as being willing to sell his brother ended up in the death of his progenitry and their wickedness. Then ended up in the death of his covenant relationship with his wife. Then He's the cause of an Israelite woman becoming a cult prostitute. Now, because of the train of events where Judah has not understood the consequences of his own actions, 
It's somebody else's fault. You see Judah giving away the symbol of his authority. You see him giving away his tribal identity. And you see him giving away the honor of a good name. That's what these items that he's giving to her all represent in the life of a Jew. And it's not hard for Judah to do this. He doesn't even realize how important it is because he's already lied to his father. He's already lied to Tamar about the pledge. And truthfully, he's been lying to himself for decades now. Verse 19 continues. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Inam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. What a job to ask your friend to do. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Let's just engage with that for a minute. Rather than suffer any humiliation, humor, somebody else directing a joke at him. Look at what he's willing to give away now. Okay? Because he's been trading off the currency of his brother's reputation anyway. He's been looking to profit off of his brother's anyway. And now, like Esau, he's willing to give away his whole birthright just to avoid any level of public exposure. Judah lied to his father. Judah lied to himself about the nobility of it. Judah has lied to this young girl named Tamar, saying, I will give you my son. Now he's the father of two illegitimate children that are not able to enter the house of the Lord for generations. In a coming sermon, that will become very important to you. The Adullam event. Write that down. What you need to know, though, is that selling out your brother, even in small ways, well, it doesn't benefit you in the end. It actually forfeits your own identity. It forfeits your authority. And it forfeits your purpose. If trading off of your brother's misfortune through speech or any other way really stems from you misunderstanding your father, what you need to understand is the behavior also destroys the identity that flows from the throne of God in you. It's why we're insecure. It's why we assume the worst of other people and don't realize that it's because it's what we would do in that circumstance. Trading off of your brother's reputation, not fighting for your brother, destroys your identity. And it's why so many of us are weak and don't know who we are in Christ. And if it offends you that I say that, I'm talking about myself too. But I also am not concerned about offending you. I'm, I'm concerned that you could be offended by a statement like that. If you knew who you were in Christ, you would not be offended by it. You'd be perfected by it. And it's because you have the very problem we're talking about. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
Saints, I'm going to help you with this for just a minute. He's not moved by desire for righteousness. You know that. He just slept with what he thought was a prostitute. What he is motivated by is the alleviation of the vow that he made. See, if she's burned, then he doesn't have to keep his vow. To him in this moment, it feels like he has another holy solution. I can sell out this young girl just like I did my brother, and it will alleviate me of my vow, and it will preserve one son in my family line. I will protect myself yet again by letting this one burn so that I stay alive. Have you made a vow to somebody, and then they did something you don't like, <laughs> and they're burned up in your eyes now, and you no longer have to keep your vow? We will support you forever, brother. We'll die for you. We are behind you. You are going to succeed. I'm a Transjordan tribe. I will fight for your success. I feel like you insulted my child, so uh, you're burned up in my life. If it passed your lips, God will hold you accountable for it. Okay? Did you make your vow in this way? As long as you never do anything that I dislike regarding my children or our personal interactions, then I will do those things for you. Or did you say you would die for your brother's vision? See, we find ways to excuse ourselves based on the behavior of another. But our problem is really with our father. Because you made the vow before him. He heard it. And he wants you to fight for your brothers. As we read these next couple verses... You need to view the entire chapter of 38 as God's sovereignty and faithfulness to Judah. Out of time, out of chronology, Genesis is letting you know what breaks Judah down before he meets his brother again in the future. What you're about to see is his worst and yet best moment all at once. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Tamar sends his belongings and asks Judah to identify them. This is exactly what Judah and his brothers did to Jacob. They took his cloak, dipped it in blood, and said, Father, please identify this. Is this your son? Well, she's done the same thing to him, and it is forcing him to stare his own sin in the face. Saints, this really is the real turning point in Judah's life when he can no longer hide from the effects in his sons and his wife and him. He is the problem. His own insecurity and misunderstanding of the father has brought him to this point, and it is no one else's fault but his. He's having to face the fact that his sin has brought about these consequences. And it all started when he sold his brother out and lied to his father. The belongings that Tamar got, they weren't wages. They're supposed to be hers anyway. She is supposed to marry the offspring to whom they belong. But what Judah has done is really turned into dog's wages in the house of God. Because he is the cause of all of these things. He has caused her to have to act like a cult prostitute. And yet up until this moment, he sees her as the problem and not him as the problem. 
Sin is deceptive. Let me just give you a hint. Anytime that you think your brothers are the problem, you're wrong. It always starts with you. Anytime you think that your brother's being benefited in some way takes away from you, you're wrong. That is not the issue. You are. Anytime you think that because your brothers haven't done something, it is holding you back, you are wrong. Your very footsteps are ordained by God. No one can keep you from accomplishing God's will, but your brothers can aid you in God's will. We're going to have to move on because we're an hour and 12, but it's worth doing, isn't it? Joseph had dreams. You remember, what, what, what were his dreams? His brothers would bow down to him. And that really upset his brothers. His father treasured it, but that upset his brothers. We don't hear about God's will for Judah. We don't hear yet about God's will for the other brothers. But did that mean that God didn't have blessings for them? That their father didn't have blessings? We just haven't heard them yet. Watch where this story goes. We're going to scan forward in your Bibles to Genesis 42. You should remember that the world has changed drastically. There's now a famine in the land. God is pouring out consequences and circumstances to get Judah and his brothers to face the fact that they are the one who is unrighteous in this situation. Picking up in verse 13, it says, And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers. Saints, do you know who they're speaking to? They're speaking to Joseph, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. See, they're having a discussion with Joseph about grain, although they don't know it's Joseph. And for whatever reason, they just can't help but admit, talk about the fact that they're supposed to be 12 in all. It's because they're starving to death. Their sons have died. Their wives have died. And they now are beginning to remember why all of this happened. It started with them selling their brother out. And when speaking to what they believed to be an Egyptian official, they can't help but note the fact that they were 12 in all. And they consider their brother dead. And they're staring at him alive and don't know it. You see, in effect, we have two resurrection processes that have begun. Joseph, in their eyes, died the day he went into slavery. These brothers have been dying every day that they have been living in sin. But the truth is there is still hope for Judah, his brothers, and Joseph. But it only comes from one thing, one way. They must face the reality of their sin and begin to restore what is right. We're going to move to Genesis 44, picking up in verse 31. You're going to see how this comes to pass. Are you there? Yeah. Genesis 44, verse 31. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant 
became a pledge. Did Judah learn something about keeping his vows? Became a pledge of the safety for the boy to my father saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Before we read how this resolves, look at what has happened in Judah's heart. God has allowed consequence in his life, has allowed him to reap from his own actions so that he himself has sold himself into slavery, so that he himself is dying in the events, but he's had an awakening. I cannot look at my father ever again without having fought for my brother. I cannot bear to see my father's face if I have not presented a brother in the way that my father sees him and loves him. Where he had been willing to sell out a brother to look better himself. He now is willing to sell himself into slavery that a brother might succeed. This is the heart of our father. Judah is starting to understand the problem was with him, never his dad. Church, we turn a corner as a community. When we're no longer interested in the way that we look, our success, and our calling, you cannot bear to stand before your heavenly father if your brother is not healthy, whole, successful, and wearing the coat that God gave him. Judah is fighting for his brother. And this does something remarkable. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. You want to know the heart of Messiah? You want him to reveal himself to you? Then start to fight for your brother's advancement at your own detriment and you will have found and recognize the heart of Messiah. This is what John 15 is teaching. This is what John 13 is teaching. This is the testimony of John the Baptist in John 3. This is the heart of God. And we're often far from it. God will fight for you. And reveal himself to you. When you fight for your brother. This is a revelation that we have to do more than put on a wall or a bumper sticker. You are missing a revelation of Jesus Christ. When you are not fighting for your brother's welfare. 
your brother's survival, your brother's calling. And this brother is, that he's fighting for is Benjamin. He's the youngest. He's the least significant, the least accomplished, except the father loves him and named him son of my joy. See, where Judah had been jealous of the favor of a father on Joseph, he is now fighting because the favor of his father is on Benjamin, for Benjamin. Judah has experienced a death and a resurrection. This is the moment that Judah is acceptable because of Messiah before his father. In the midst of this beautiful resurrection theme painting, we honestly have to engage in this room at an hour and 20 minutes. It's really not worth leaving or moving on until we have grasped the fact that you desperately want to be Joseph. You have thought of yourself as Joseph. When you walked in here this morning, your attitude was that I am the one who has been mistreated. And in my magnanimous, Christ-like character, I'm going to love my brothers anyway. You need to stare in the face the fact that you are Judah and his brothers. You've never been Joseph. You are the one who sold out your brothers and needs the revelation that I must sell myself into slavery for the Father's will. What happens in these brothers is beautiful. There is prophecy. There are direct things that tie them together to the coming Messiah from these events, but it could not happen without the turning and recognition of it is now my job to sell myself into slavery for the sake of my brother because my whole life from the time that I was born, every inclination of my thoughts has been evil. I wanted what my siblings had, and that continues to this day. Christ, transform me. Make me like you. I am not the one that is mistreated. I am the one who owes my brothers something. Nobody owes you a damn thing. You owe your brothers everything. Genesis 49. Oh, come on now. This, this is worth you shaking off the sleepies. We've hurt your feelings. I know this has hurt our feelings because we are Judah and the brothers. I've been way too focused for way too long on all that God has called me to do. He hasn't called me to do anything other than make sure you succeed. The idolatry of self has slipped into all of our lives. And it shows up in our prayer life that is about us and our concerns and not about our brothers. It shows up in our speech. It shows up in our negligent uh, behavior towards our brothers, our willful neglect of our brothers. Maybe you sacrifice for the ones you like and not the ones you don't like, but your father loves them all. Your Judah is understanding the heart of his father and reflecting the heart of it. His father would die if Benjamin was harmed. So Judah would rather die than have Benjamin harmed. That has to be our heart. Now, you're about to find out something that is amazing, something extraordinary that has been hidden from you your whole life. You want to learn it? Yes. Do you want to learn it? Yes. That vow just passed your lips. Do not leave here without getting this, okay? You, you don't have to beat the Methodist to our, our local restaurant. 
You, you don't have to worry about your clock. Your life could hinge on understanding this next point. Genesis 49 verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Genesis 49.1 reveals to you what the heart of the father was from the very beginning of the story. There was always prophecy. There was always blessing for all 12 tribes. This is repeated in Deuteronomy 33 where Moses does it again. But you never get to the point where you can see the blessing on Judah and his brothers if they don't face the fact that they owe their brother something and their brother does not owe them anything. Well, as he's telling you this, reflect on something. This is the father blessing his 12 sons. And the genesis of this story, to borrow the phrase, is that they were worried that the blessing of the father on Joseph took something from them. That's where this story started. If my father is showing him favor, that takes something from me. But these blessings were pre existent just not yet revealed your steps are prepared from God before you are aware of them he prepared you're his workmanship prepared in advance for good works he already had these blessings in mind for them the brothers just don't know it yet now listen to the blessing this blessing was what his father had in mind from the very beginning. But it is only revealed in Judah taking on the heart of the father for Benjamin. Our prayer in this room is that we would learn to face the fact that we are the ones who sold our brothers into slavery. But take on the heart of the father who will then never let that happen again. There is a redemption story that is going on in Genesis. It is the sin of Judah and the redemption of all 12 in the Father's sovereignty. Today, we don't have time to tell you about 12 apostles that are 12 tribes. But they have a redemption story that is identical. In fact, there's one named Judah who sells his brother out, but is redeemed by the son of David. The 12 are made whole because there was a perfect Judah. We don't have time to tell you about 12 foundations that exist in the book of Revelation, or 12 thrones that were promised by Jesus. But there has been a story about 12 brothers that is founded here in Genesis 49 that carries all the way through the word. In fact, the Bible is a story about one family and about 12 brothers. We want to look at the blessing on Judah as a result of these events in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Wait, what? There was always a blessing on Judah that the father's sons would bow down to him as well? The very thing that upset the brothers was that Joseph had a prophecy about brothers bowing down and they had the same blessing all along? They didn't know it because they were blinded. They believed that their father favoring their brother took something away from them. And no one can take away the blessing of your father in your life but you. 
he was destined to have the brothers bow to him as well. And the only reason he couldn't see it, and the only reason he went through decades of death and pain was he was blinded by his own envy and mistreatment of his brother. But this was revealed to him when he started fighting for his brother's calling in life. Can I promise you that your identity, your blessing, the path that God has for you will become clearest to you when you are solely focused on preserving the life of your brothers? See, Judah and Joseph inherit the blessings of God together. Through this process, through this facing of their own sin, own trials, and it is only together that the brothers receive this inheritance. See, on other days we will talk to you about other sons of Judah. But there's a kind of leadership sketch, a character sketch that goes throughout the word. Judah has always been the problem. And Judah has always been the cure. Throughout the scripture, he's both the one who sells his brother into slavery and the one who redeems his brother with his own life. There's a similar wrestling that is going on inside of this room. God is calling us to fight for our brothers. But we often are the problem that needs curing. And we have to recognize that. We have to face that. Because in fighting for the blessing of our brothers, the whole family is resurrected. One receiving their promise takes nothing. In fact, it ensures that all receive their promise. Verse 9 goes on to say, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. When Judah did not fight for his brother, but instead was willing for his brother to be a slave because he thought it enhanced him in some way, he could not see that his father had a blessing that the brothers would bow to him. When he does learn his father's heart, and he begins to fight for the life of his brother, even at the loss of his own. He finds out not only that he has a blessing that is equal to his brother, but that a scepter is coming to his family line and his family will produce the king. You want to be a king? Fight for your brother to be a king first. You will find out that makes you a king with him. And that Jesus is, in fact, the king of kings, plural. We are learning something as a church body. As long as your eyes are on you and your mistreatment, you are deceived. Your eyes need to be upon your mistreatment of others. Repent, correct it, fight for their heavenly calling their coat. Not fight to take it from them. Fight to make sure they wear it well. Amen. Fight to make sure that they achieve all that the Father has favored them for. And your blessings will become clear in the process. And you'll find out you're a king right along with them. How many of you knew that Judah's brothers were always destined to bow to him too? We focused on the wrong brother in the story. We focused on the one that is Messiah, not you. 
You've put yourself in the place of Messiah when you read this. You see yourself as Joseph. You are not Messiah. You are Judah's brothers. But the beautiful thing is, not only does Messiah die and resurrect, <laughs> his interactions cause his brothers to die and resurrect. It's what Messiah does for us when we recognize our own sin. He restores us. He elevates us. He takes us higher. Saints, we're at the conclusion of what we want to share with you. We also don't want to leave the room without there being genuine conviction born. So we hear a lot of sermons. We hear a lot of teaching. What I want is for conviction to be born in you that will last decades for your brothers. I want to tell you boldly, this story is what we wanted to speak about because it is me and it is my father. More times than I can count, I have sold my brothers out. I've pretended that I am Joseph, thinking I am the one that should be gracious towards others. Are there many, any, any men in this room that rather than with lights off at an altar, but standing here next to your brothers, would want to stand and say, I have acted, thought I was Joseph? Raise your hand for just a minute. Now, I have labored under the belief in the body of Christ far too often that I was Joseph when I actually needed to be Judah turning and repenting from my past actions and setting a conviction, a conviction. I will never let my brother be sold out again. Lower your hands for just a minute. Does anybody have the Spirit of God pounding on your heart about things that have passed through your lips? <laughs> In all honesty, I, look, as we're speaking here, I, <laughs> I'm thinking about conversations I've had where I committed to pray for something with Tisdale that I have not made good on my vow. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make good on the vow. No amount of time crying about my not fulfilling the vow... Praying at the altar will not fulfill it. Leave your gift at the altar and go do what is right. Would you raise your hand if there is something that has passed through your lips that you must make right when you walk out of here? For some of you, that's prayer. For some of you, it is a specific loving action that you have withheld and cannot be withheld past today's service. As we begin to pray together and respond to this, God is teaching us what it looks like to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So make up your mind that you're asking God for clarity, for power, but the action of repentance is entirely in your hands as soon as we dismiss here. We could do this forever and we're not going to. But it dawned on me on Thursday night that when we hear our brothers talking about Jonathan visiting David, Aaron visiting Moses, and all that I and probably most of you had the thought, yeah, it really would be good if somebody showed up to help me. It really would be good if somebody decreased themselves for me. It really, because we view ourselves like Joseph, we're always the one being wrong. What we're trying to do is switch this around so that you're not looking for a brother to come help you. 
come strengthen you, come advocate for you, you realize that you have been negligent in doing that for others. And the reason we don't see it is that we are inherently selfish. We think it revolves around us. I wish somebody would talk to me. I wish somebody would cross the room and, and help me. Today, since you know you're Judah's brothers, recognize it's your responsibility to cross the room for your brothers and stop expecting anyone to do it for you. And then you'll be glad when they do. We're going to pray. We're a family. All of us are equally guilty. <laughs> There's nowhere. But our Father loves us. He loved all 12. He always had a blessing for all 12. And he's showing us this so that our callings will expand. So that we can figure out how to do some of the things he's asking. He's, he's leading us with grace and compassion. He's not showing you this to destroy you or tell you that you're worthless. He's actually curing your identity problem, and you may not recognize that yet. He's securing you as a righteous son. That's the point of this. But you have to go through Judah's process. Father, would you have mercy upon we, the brothers that not only sold out Messiah in our actions, but sell out the other members of the body of Christ. We who have been focused on ourselves, acknowledging with our lips right words, but in our actions and hearts being narcissists. Lord, only you can fix us. That's how our journey with you began, and it's how it continues. Work in us to move and to act according to your good purpose. Let your spirit of holiness well up and fix the things that are broken in us. Lord, we need you to not only show us, but empower us to better things. And we know that because you love us, you will. And we're asking with confidence and broken hearts, all in the same moment, come and have your way with us right here as a family.